1 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're going to be if you want to take out your Bibles or if you don't have one, you want to locate one in the seat pocket in front of you as we continue our journey through uh, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And as you guys find it in uh, your scriptures, let me just remind you that Paul planted this church back in Acts chapter 18. And so as he's planted this new church in this heavily uh, mercantile trade area of Corinth, what we find is just a couple years later, there begin to be problems. And so Paul receives letters addressing or mentioning to him, uh, bringing up to him so that he can address problems that have taken place inside the church in Corinth. And they ranged from uh, people arguing and having infighting, as well as a guy sleeping with his mother-in-law, people getting drunk at the communion table. I mean, all kinds of things happening right here in God's house. And so Paul's receiving all these letters and all this information coming to him. But what it really was taking place behind the scenes is they were being uh, infiltrated. This church that he had planted was being infiltrated by uh, the Greek philosophies. And you might remember that I mentioned last week and a couple weeks before that, that this word philosophy, it's really a Greek compound word. It's phileo, meaning love, and sophia, which is wisdom. They loved wisdom. But the wisdom that they loved wasn't the wisdom of God. It was the wisdom of man, what they could come up with, what they thought about. And what Paul communicates to them is, look, the wisdom of God is actually foolishness to men, to mankind. They're going to hear this message of the cross and they're going to say, this is complete craziness. This is foolishness to them. And so Paul writes them this letter to address these issues that have begun to take place. But of all the issues I listed out for you to begin with, uh, the first thing Paul starts with, the place he actually goes, it isn't the guy that is uh, sleeping with his mother-in-law. It isn't people getting drunk in the communion line or cutting in front of one another. It is divisiveness. He first addresses division that is taking place inside the church. And they were divided about some of the craziest things. I mean, they were arguing about Who's your favorite Bible teacher? Who baptized too? All these things. And isn't it amazing in our relationships how division begins with some of the smallest things? Some of the most silly, little, trivial items, it begins to grow up. It takes a root of bitterness inside our heart. And so Paul writes to them about what is really happening, that they're actually divided first inside their own conscience that they are divided as a people. And so as a a quick aside, I mentioned this last week, but just to remind you that as God created us, what he also did is he made us in his image. We are uh, three in one. We're a a trinity, if you want to say, in and of ourselves. We are body, we are soul, and we are spirit. The body in the Greek is the soma. This is what we communicate with one another with, right? It carries us around from place to place. The the soul is our psyche. This is the place where we make decisions. It's what makes us us. But then there's a third part. It's the, the pneuma. It's the same word that we get our word pneumatic, the air, the breath of life. It's the spirit. And so the issue that is at hand is for a people, we are born naturally to men, is that just like the nature of Adam and Eve, uh, we are naturally spiritually dead. We have no uh, spiritual life in us whatsoever. And we know it, by the way. This is why people search and they seek and they search because they're looking to reconnect with God, but they don't understand what Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes is we have an eternity, an eternal hole in us and we don't know how to fill it. We've got uh, uh, eternity in our hearts is what he said. 
And so we've got this problem that is cured uh, through the power of the cross that Jesus actually fixed. Uh, John chapter 20, after the resurrection, he's speaking there before his disciples and he actually breathes on them. He gives them the pneuma and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And at that point in time, the Holy Spirit came in them and they were spiritually alive for the first time ever. They were born again. And so they actually had the ability to now connect with God in a way that only Adam and Eve had experienced prior to the fall. They could connect with God to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so they're able to be connected, but something else takes place. You see, when we receive the Holy Spirit, now the psyche has a decision to make. Which am I going to listen to? The desires of the flesh, the soma, which cries out hard against us. Or am I going to listen to the Spirit? And so we have this war that actually exists within the Christian that is trying to direct us towards the Spirit. But man, the flesh cries out. Man, the flesh, it desires to actually win. And so in chapter 3, Paul addresses this. He talks about their carnality. They were Christians. They believed, and yet they were being driven, uh, dominated, ruled by their flesh. They were giving in to the desires of the Soma. And as a result, they were spiritually diminished. And what we know about this is that as we give in to our flesh, it leads to regret and shame. And this is exactly the spot the enemy wants us because we're rendered completely ineffective for the kingdom. And so he tries to keep us in this spot. But what Paul says at the end of the third chapter, he said, you are Christ and Christ is God's. But we're pulled, right? I, I downloaded this picture uh, that I saw of a t-shirt on the internet. A lot of us fall in this camp. I love Jesus, but I cuss a little, right? And so we've got that carnality in us, this fleshly desire. Well, I love Jesus, but you know, I, I don't want to cuss and chew and go with girls that do, but I fall into this every now and again. And so this is the spot we're in. But what Paul says here at the end of chapter 3 is you're Christ, and Christ is God's. We are created in His image. We're actually Christians by name. And what it means is to be a little Christ. It means that we now have Jesus in us and we get to go into the community and be Jesus to other people. We're literally Jesus with skin on. These tabernacles that we walk around in lots of times will be the only Christ that some people will ever experience. And so this is the challenge that Paul is giving to them. And we're going to pick back up on this uh, issue here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4 as Paul rounds out his discussion through these first four chapters of divisiveness that we are divided even within ourselves. Now, verse 1, he says, let a man so consider as servants, excuse me, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And so what Paul says is consider us, consider us as leaders here in the church. What we're really called to in ministry is to be servants. And the word here in the Greek that's used, it's translated for us as servants. It's actually a nautical term. And what it means is an under oarsman. So if you think about ships out on the sea in that day, they were uh, they had horsepower. It wasn't horses. It was people powered. And underneath in the belly of the ship, there were slaves that had a job. And their job was to row, to keep rowing. They were called under oarsmen. They didn't get to decide which direction the ship went. Uh, they couldn't put a request in, hey, turn right, turn left. No, they had a singular job. It was to row. 
And this is what Paul says we are. We are called to be servants, to be under oarsmen. We're called to do one thing very specifically, and that is to row. We're not the captain. We don't get to dictate where the rudder takes us. That job belongs to the captain of our salvation, is what Hebrews says. Uh, that's Jesus. He gets to decide which direction the ship goes. But for an under oarsman, for a minister, for a servant, we're called to just row, baby. Just keep on rowing. And oftentimes that's how our life feels, right? We're just, we're rowing, we're plodding along. He continues to say we're under oarsmen, we're servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. And so the next title he gives to himself and the other disciples is we're stewards. Now a steward was also a slave in the master's house, but a slave with a different responsibility. You see, a steward was responsible. If you think of the story of Joseph in the house of Potiphar, he was given charge over the master's house, over his wealth in particular. And so this is the, the job of a steward. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives a, a parable of the talents. We'll get to that here in just a minute. But it's a parable of the stewards and what they would do with the wealth of the master. Now, you think about what wealth is Paul talking about. Well, what he mentions here is, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, these mysteries aren't uh, a Scooby-Doo kind of a mystery, right? It's not a rot roo raggy <laughs> Not that kind of a mystery. These are mysteries that can actually be found. They could be discovered, uh, but it has to be through the eyes of the Spirit. Our natural eyes can't see it. This is why the, the natural man who is spiritually dead picks up the Bible and they're like, what? And the heck is that? I mean, that is some ancient writing. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And the reality is they don't have spiritual eyes. They, they cannot. The natural man or woman can't understand the mysteries of God because they don't have the Spirit to translate. But the Spirit comes in us, and now we're given as stewards over the, the goodness of God, the pearls of His wisdom. And so then when we dig into these Old Testament stories and God begins to blow us away, we're like, I never saw it that way. It touches us in a, in a deeper way. It, it, this, is, this is how the text can reach us. Now, some of you might ask, why would God do this? Why wouldn't he just give us an instruction manual? I mean, step one, to be a good Christian looks like this. Step two, to have a good marriage. Step three, to be a good husband, to be a good employee. Why not just give us step-by-step -step instructions on what we're supposed to do? And I would turn it back around on you and say, what relationship ever really looked like that? Who among you that are married, did you ever have a relationship where it was step-by-step, -step, this is how it's to go? It doesn't work like that, right? It's communication and it's understanding and it's learning one another. And this is how we are to be with Christ. For years of my life, I grew up thinking that this was an instruction manual. And it wasn't until the eyes of my spirit were opened, the eyes of my heart, where I realized this is no instruction manual. It's a love letter. <laughs> this is a love letter and how we can grow in our relationship with him. And so we have to pray that he would open our spiritual eyes. This is why a text written two and three and four thousand years ago can speak to me today in this relationship that I enter into with him. It addresses my very situation. And it's eye-opening. It's mind-boggling to see. Now, uh, verse 2, Paul continues and he says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found 
faithful. And so to go to the story that I referenced a minute ago, Matthew chapter 25, this is the parable of the talents. Uh, I will read it for you rather quickly, but it's worth uh, looking at. In verse 14 of Matthew 25, Jesus speaking here, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who has called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. He's given them charge over his wealth. And to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. And then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five. And likewise, verse 17, he who had received two gained another two also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid the Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of the servants came and settled accounts with them. Verse 20, so he who had received five talents came and brought the five uh, brought the other five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. And his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you had not sown, gathering where you had not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. And he gave him his talent back. But his Lord answered and said, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received my own with interest. And so take from him that excuse me, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. But he, but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so in this parable of the talents, the Lord has given to each based upon his own ability. I want to point that out really quickly. God didn't give us this as a story to say he's going to give us more than we have ability to handle. He's going to give the talents based upon their own ability. But note with me what really was required of the servants. The Lord of the house didn't say, well done, good and successful servant. Nice job. Or well done, good and educated servant. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. The only requirement of these servants, these stewards of the Lord's wealth, was to be faithful. They were just to be faithful with with what they had been given. Not faithful to what their neighbor had been given or someone else. Only faithful to what they had been given. And the result, the reward of this is to enter into the joy of the Lord. A beautiful promise through simple faithfulness. And this is what Paul is repeating. We're only called to be faithful or to be found faithful. But, verse 3, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. 
For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. And so what Paul is saying is, look, I'm not worried about what you think of me. You can think of me whatever you want. I'm not judged by you. I'm judged by the Lord. He's my judge. And what he goes on to say here is, I'm not even capable of actually judging myself. Lots of times this is where I find me at, is I want to judge myself. I think I've done a pretty good job, but the truth is, I don't even know my own intentions. I'm not even completely sure of my own motives. What Jeremiah says, and this will be uplifting, chapter 17, verse 9 of Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? This this is our heart. It's deceitful. We can be tricked by ourselves to think we're doing something for the right reasons. Who can really know what's in a man's heart? So Paul says, I'm going to allow the Lord to be the judge. Verse 5, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. And so what Paul says is there's going to be a day where we're all going to be judged. For those that do not believe there is a white throne judgment. That's where the Lord says, just like he did in Matthew 25, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Cast out into outer darkness. That's what it's going to look like for the white throne. But for those who do believe, we're going to appear before the Lord. And Paul says, this is the Bema seat. I mentioned this last week. This is the reward seat. And it's a reference to the Isthmian games, these Olympic style games that they would compete. And as they would compete and then uh, finish up their race, they would go before the governor of the land there in Achaia and he would present to them their reward. Now, what I also told you is as they would compete in these games, um, they typically competed naked. So that's a little concerning. But the idea, the visual, if you can kind of keep that off to one side, is that this is how we appear before the Lord, you see. All things are open and naked to him. We, we appear before him with nothing. And then he gives us rewards for our time here on earth. And so this Bema seat judgment. Now, Paul says in verse 5 that when that day comes, he will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Now, uh, for years of my life, what I thought it was going to look like is to appear before the Lord at this Bema seat. Um, he was then going to put a big movie screen up. And all the things, it was a, this is your life. All the things that I'd ever done were going to be played back. For me to see, for the Lord to see, and all the things that I had uh, messed up, muffed up along the way, uh, even the things that were in my own heart that I didn't want to talk about with anybody, that all this was going to be open and displayed. And I got to tell you, that did not seem like heaven. Not even a little bit. Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 17, and he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. I think that is a complete falsehood for us to believe that the Lord is going to display everything that we've messed up all along the way. His promise here is he's going to remember. That doesn't mean he's forgetful. That means he intentionally isn't going to bring it up. He's going to 
pretend like it never happened. We've been justified just as if I had never sinned. And so it brings us back to this point. What are those things that are the hidden things of darkness that reveal to the counsel of the hearts? Well, uh, I will throw this out there and you can consider it. Um, I believe when we stand there before him on that day and we have those questions in our mind like, Lord, why did this have to happen this way? Why didn't that prayer ever get answered? Why did you handle this in this certain direction? We've got all those questions, those hidden things in our heart that we wrestle with. I believe on that day, he's going to make it clear that when we can't see today, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 is that we're looking at this life like a a glass dimly. In other words, a mirror with the kind of the the soap scum or the fog over it. You can't see. You can tell there's an image there when you get out of the shower, but you can't completely depict it. And that's how we operate in this life. But on that day, he's going to wipe it clean. And we're going to be able to see exactly what he was up to in our lives. We're going to be able to tell what he was doing. We prayed that prayer that he didn't answer. And we held on to it. Lord, why? Why did that have to happen? He's going to show it to us. And what Psalm 19 verse 9, and then John repeats it in Revelation 19 verse 2, the only thing we're going to be able to say back to him is, Lord, true and righteous are your judgments. What you do, what you decide is true and it's righteous. What I decide, very questionable. But what you decide, it's true and it's righteous and it's good. Now continuing in verse 6. Paul writes, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you uh, may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Verse 7, for who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if if you did indeed receive it, Why do you boast as if you had not received it? And so what Paul's saying is, I've used Apollos and myself as examples for you to understand figuratively what I'm trying to play out. But the reality is, you've been divided on who you like better as a Bible teacher, but we're both just servants. We are men of God. We've been called into ministry, and it's His body singularly, His temple singularly. And so now you're fighting among each other, but what you're really fighting is, who's our favorite under oarsman? Who's our favorite guy that rose? I mean, that's who you're picking between. The only thing that made uh, Paul special, the only thing that makes Apollo special in reality is God. He's the one that gets to decide. And this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. I mean, he wrote 13 of our 27 books in the New Testament. The guy is brilliant off the charts. There's no denying that. Or Apollo, such a gifted orator that people would would come to hear him preach and speak. And what Paul says is the only thing that makes us special is God Almighty. He's the one. He's the giver of life. And so these people, much like us, are very diverse. We are a diverse group of people. We think differently. We act differently. We look differently. But what is special is His Spirit. While we are diverse and He has created us individually, He has also unified us by the power of His Holy Spirit. We get to be universe, we get to be diversity with unity on display for the world to see. Now, 
Verse 8, he's going to continue. And here, Paul is going to go into what I would call uh, sanctified sarcasm. Uh, I love this because I am naturally sarcastic, but my wife says it's not sanctified. I uh, tend to disagree with her. I believe all my sarcasm is uh, sanctified, but here Paul's for sure is. He says in verse 8, you are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Uh, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. And to the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Paul paints a rosy picture of what their life is like. That these Corinthians, because of their own pride, their own self-righteousness, they put themselves up on a pedestal. Their super secret hidden knowledge that they have that no one else can have access to. And yet Paul says in verse 9, but we're a spectacle. Me and the other apostles, we are literally a spectacle. And that word in the Greek was used for Uh, slaves, prisoners that were taken captive in battle, they would lead them to the Colosseum behind the chariots as a spectacle. And what they would do with the spectacles is they would throw them into the Colosseum and then they would let loose the lions and the tigers and the bears, oh my, to rip them to pieces. That's a spectacle. This is what Paul is saying we are. We have been led to the Colosseum for all to see us literally torn to pieces for you. Paul then goes on to say he continued to work in his ministry with his own hands. Now, for the Greeks in this place, to work with your hands was considered beneath anybody. And Paul's saying, I worked with my own hands as a, as a tent maker. This was Paul's trade. He would work with his hands to provide, to support his ministry. So the Corinthians couldn't say, we made Paul rich. Look what we did for Paul. We're the ones supporting him and propping him up. He says, I'll have none of it. I'll work with my own hands. Thank you very much. So that you can't say that you made me wealthy or that you took care of me. What Paul is communicating is a story of complete and utter humiliation. And yet, out of humiliation is where we most often find ourselves gaining humility. I'd love to tell you that we Uh, are humbled and have humility from some other form and some other place. But it, it, at least for me in my life, it always happens when I am completely humiliated. But there's the place where my pride is down and God can actually work with that. And here is Paul. He's saying, look, you've, you've now argued about who's your favorite under oarsman. You're now arguing about who's your favorite spectacle. Who's your favorite one thrown into the ring? This is what you're complaining and dividing yourselves about. Now, why on earth would Paul say all this? Let's continue. Verse 14, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, 
Yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. You see, Paul isn't writing this letter to a church. He's not writing this to just a group of people that he'd heard about. He's writing this letter to people he spent almost two years of his life with. That he led them to the Lord. They were his kids. They were his family. This is how they were behaving. This was personal as Paul is writing this to them. He wasn't writing this to shame them, but because he loved them, because he actually begot them as his spiritual children. And what you guys know is that this is a lot like uh, parenting for real, right? Parenting in the faith is a lot like parenting. That as we raise these children, what happens is early on, they look up to us, they love us, they want to be around us. And then something happens. Uh, you all get really, really, really stupid. Somewhere in the teenage years. I mean, you went from being so intelligent and we wanted to be with you that you just all of a sudden got real dumb. And then outside of this stage, when they leave the house and they go off and they figure out life isn't the way they thought it was, um, you get real smart again. So you go from smart to stupid uh, to smart all in this time period. And and this is what Paul is experiencing with his spiritual children. They wanted to be with him. He was so smart. They, they loved his teaching. But then at some point, uh, they were now operating like spiritual adolescents, like a bunch of teenage crybabies rolling their eyes, not wanting to listen to what Paul had to say. And what he's saying is, look, I love you like my own kids. And you have to wonder, as Paul's writing this letter with them acting this way and speaking of him the way they're speaking about him, why wouldn't he just quit? And I would submit to you that he didn't quit for the same reasons that you don't quit. For the same reasons you don't give up on your own kids. That's how much he loved them. He wasn't doing it for them. He wasn't doing it for himself, excuse me. He was doing this for them. Because the reality is it would have been better for Paul. What he would write is uh, to live as Christ and to die as gain. It would actually be better for the Lord to just take him home. He was going to spend eternity with Jesus. But what he's saying is, look, to live as Christ, I'm here living with you for your sake. I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to actually see you move along in this spiritual journey. And a little bit of Bible math for you guys. I know you love Bible math on a Sunday morning. It goes something like this. Um, as we grow in Christ, we decrease. We're subtracted so that he can increase. He is added to so that the kingdom can be multiplied. That's actually the way this whole thing is supposed to work. We, in our own prideful state, we get a decrease so that he can increase so that others can come to know him. For John the Baptist, this is exactly the spot that he found himself. I mean, he was the man on the scene in Israel. People were coming uh, to be baptized out in the wilderness. This crazy man wearing camel fur, eating locusts and honey. I mean, had to be some kind of scene in the wilderness with John the baptizer out baptizing people. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And people begin to leave John's ministry to go to Jesus. What John says when he's confronted with this a topic in John the Baptist in John's gospel. Not John didn't write this. John the Apostle did. But in John the Baptist speaking, he says in verse 30 of John chapter 3, 
He, speaking of Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. He's confronted with this issue. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And do you think that John, when he wrote this, realized that just a short while from here, he's going to lose his own life as Jesus increases? But what he drills down in their minds in verse 36 of John 3, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is what's at stake, is what John's saying. Whoever believes in the Son will live. And he who does not believe in the Son will spend eternity in hell. And so, yes, I'm going to decrease. But that means more people are going to come to know Jesus and going to live. And this is the the game plan for God. If you want to know what His game plan looks like in our lives, as we are equipped for the work of the ministry, it's to go and make disciples. We are called to be His disciple and then to go and make disciples. Jesus didn't say, go therefore and make converts of all men. He says, go therefore and make disciples. You be disciplined and then go make other disciples. It's disciples making disciples. That's the kingdom game plan. Paul continues in verse 16 with the how. How is this possible? Therefore I urge you, imitate me. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord who will remind you of the ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. How is this possible? How can we make disciples? By imitating Jesus. And if you're not sure how to imitate Jesus, what Paul says is, hey, imitate me in chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Be a a Paul to somebody. I mentioned this last week. For every one of us, we should have a Paul, one that encourages us, one that we can emulate, and we should have a Timothy in our life, one that we're bringing along on the way. It's disciples making disciples. And Paul shares this hard thing with them because he's getting ready in chapters 5 through 11 to get in their business. He's going to get up in their grill about things that are going on, but he can do this because he's invested in them. He spent time with them. We get excited about getting up in people's grills, but we didn't invest anything in their lives. And so we didn't make enough deposits in the spiritual bank to be able to make a withdrawal. And then we're shocked that we bankrupted the account. And we have to make investments with people. We have to be life on life with people before you can say something hard in their life. And it takes a bunch of deposits to get there. But Paul, as an example, what he is showing them in his life is a life of self-denial, which is, or excuse me, denial of self, which is different than self-denial. The two get mixed together. I about mixed them up right there talking about it. But Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross. Denying yourself is different than self-denial because self-denial means that I can uh, deny myself certain things because at the end I'm hoping to gain something for it. I can deny myself food to the point where I'm really hoping to just lose weight. I've got a, a selfish desire in there. It doesn't make it bad, but it's not denial of self. Denial of self means that I put things off and I never consider myself. I don't consider what I have to gain or more importantly, what I might lose by doing this. This is what Paul is saying. You need to deny yourselves. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, 
Verse 18, Paul continues and he says, Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. And so Paul's saying, look, it's really easy for you to be puffed up uh, when you don't have to face me uh, man to man. You're saying all kinds of things about me behind my back. And this is, man, this is the world we live in right now. We can say all kinds of stuff on social media. I mean, it is so easy to throw things out there and to cut people down and to tear people down when you don't have to face them face to face. And Paul gets word of this. And he writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, I've heard you said Paul's speech is weighty, uh, but his or his writing is weighty, but his speech is contemptible. In other words, Paul writes these great big letters, but then when he comes to speak to us, he's just a little man. Oh, I've heard you said this. And so Paul writes, look, it's easy to say stuff about my back, but then in verse 19, he says, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills it. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. Paul's saying, look, uh, I'm going to come to you in just a little bit. Don't you worry about it. But he throws something else in here that I wanted to highlight just really quickly. He says, I'm going to come to you shortly, you people that are mouthing me. That was the part I inserted. If the Lord wills. Flexibility is one of the greatest abilities we can have as a Christian. Blessed are the flexible. And here's why. Because we jam-pack our schedule so much, especially as Western Christians. We cram so much into what we have going on, we leave absolutely no room for the Holy Spirit to work. In fact, when the Holy Spirit does come in and try to work, we feel like it's completely wrecked us. It's totally thrown us off because God has thrown some kind of a spiritual wrench in our plans. What James says in James chapter 4 Verse 13, I'll let James say something hard so I don't have to. Uh, James says, come now, who you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas do you not know what, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow? For what is your life? Is it even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All boasting is evil. <laughs> and so what James says is that you get it in your head that you're going to go here and you're going to do this. Uh, but the better way to say it is, if the Lord wills it, I will. That I've got a plan put in place, but if God doesn't will it, remember, He's the one directing the ship. I'm just rowing this bad boy along. If God doesn't will this thing to happen, it will not happen. One of my favorite Chucks, or favorite Chucks, favorite quotes from Pastor Chuck was that he used to say in his big, uh, deep voice, uh, Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. Blessed are the flexible, for we shall not be broken. But what happens is we're so inflexible that when things happen in our lives, we break under the pressure when God's saying, I want you to be flexible for the moves, for the blowing of the Spirit. Now continuing here as we wrap up, verse 20. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? So Paul poses a question to them. How do you want me to come? You want me to show up with a rod 
where I'm ready to discipline and just beat the tar fire out of you? Or do you want me to come in discipline? And, and by the way, this is Paul speaking as an imitator of Christ. And we have to make the connection. How do we want Jesus to come to us? Is it with a rod? Do we, do we really desire for him to give us the, the beat down because we're living carnally? We know the right way to go and yet we continue to live and live and live for our flesh? Or do we want him to come uh, in gentleness? Listening for his voice. Being directed by his spirit. We don't always get it right. But do we at least acknowledge him in our lives? At least acknowledge that God might have a plan in this. Lord, I want to be directed by your spirit. See, what Paul is saying is he prefers to come to them in gentleness. I want to come to you as people that have been humbled. What Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12 is this. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What Jesus is encouraging us to do is actually humble ourselves so that we don't have to be humbled by the rod. Humble yourselves so that you don't have to be humbled by God, humbled by your circumstance. And then the result is you'll be exalted. But whoever exalts himself, he's going to be humbled. So this is the spot Paul is leaving them as he wraps up his time on divisiveness through these first four chapters. And as Paul concludes, just a couple things I want to ask of you to consider throughout this week. First of all, it's this. Um, what ways am I divided in my uh, relationship with God Almighty? What ways do I have division happening in my life? Something that is prohibiting me from being really connected, from really hearing Him. And then I want you to pray that God would reveal that to you. Holy Spirit, reveal it to me so that I can get that cancer cut out. So I can do away with this. So that I can be connected with Him and not be a man divided anymore or a woman divided, but to be connected with His Spirit. Secondly, I want to ask you to consider what divisiveness are you living with with others? People in your circle, people in your life. Maybe they're people you're related to. Uh, maybe they're even in your own family. Maybe they're even in your own house. Uh, maybe you even share a room with them. What areas am I divided in this relationship? And then I want to encourage you uh, to do something bold, and that is pray about it. Pray about that relationship. Pray about coming to them and addressing the divisiveness that has stopped you from growth inside that relationship, in that area. As I've been watching the NCAA tournament, there's this commercial that keeps popping up for Dick's Sporting Goods, and it's Sports Changes Lives. Cool, cool commercial. Uh, theologically, maybe off just a little bit. But what does change lives, I know 100% certain, is prayer. That prayer can actually change situations. And so what I'm encouraging you in those relationships that you're struggling with, in that spot where it's, it's divisiveness and you're not sure how to handle it, I want to encourage you to pray that God would make a way. And what you'll find, and I will promise you this, there's not a lot of guarantees out there, but what I will guarantee you, if you pray about that situation, the other person uh, might or might not change. 
but you will. If you commit to this uh, for the next seven days until we come back together on Palm Sunday, if you'll really pray, and it don't have to be a old King James, these and thou's prayer, where you just lay one down that's perfect. I mean, just, Lord, break my heart for what breaks your heart. Father, show me where I've gone wrong in this spot or show me where we've gotten divided, where, where my heart has deceived me. Father, please make a way for this thing to be better. And what you'll find is He will change your heart. He will break you down. He will show you how you can be reconnected. And it might look like an apology, it, even if you're not sure if you did anything wrong. It might look like uh, they won't even respond in kind. And yet what will happen is the peace of God that passes all understanding will rule your heart. And so, Father, I thank you. And I praise you for an opportunity to pray through something that has gripped us as a nation, uh, that has gripped us as uh, a church globally and even uh, here in our own lives in our own body. It's it's this invasive divisiveness that the enemy wants to bring about in our lives. He wants to come in and he wants to wreck us from the inside out. And Lord, we've seen it. We've seen it play out on the news. We've seen all this talk about unity and the only thing that happens is more and more divisiveness because it's not fueled by your spirit. Lord, let us be a people that are fueled by your Holy Spirit, that love way more than we could ever possibly hate. Father, help reveal in our eyes where we've gone wrong inside our own families, inside our own units, where we can we can be connected with you and we can be connected also uh, to other people. That the only way for us to be right with others is to be right with you. And the only way to be right with you is to be right with others. Lord, you've commanded it this way. We know it to be true, but we've fallen woefully short. And so, Father, please show us the way. Help us as we have the opportunity to pray for those who've hurt us and spitefully used us. We thank you and we praise you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.